Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Mind and My Wellness podcast. I'm so excited for today's episode. I have a very special guest on who has helped me tremendously in my own gut and hormone healing journey through transitioning off of hormonal birth control. Today, I am interviewing Maddie Scanapico of Mad Healthy. Maddie is a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner specializing in women's gut and hormone health. She helps women get to the root cause of and heal frustrating symptoms like acne, PMS, IBS, thyroid conditions, and so much more by understanding the why and restoring function in the body to get back to optimal health. In today's episode, Maddie and I dive deep into the effects of birth control use on the body, recommendations for smoothly transitioning off of hormonal birth control, if the time is right for you, what post-birth control syndrome is and what symptoms look like, along with how to work through them through using techniques like prepping the body with diet and lifestyle changes, how to know when it's time to look into testing and what tests to look for, and so much more. If you're planning to transition off of hormonal birth control soon or have already embarked on your journey transitioning off, or maybe you're still dealing with symptoms lingering from past birth control use, then this episode is for you. So let's dive in. Welcome to the Mind and My Wellness podcast, your podcast for all things macros, movement, mindset, and everything in between. I'm your host, Danny Marenberg an ex-yo-yo dieting cardio junkie turned sustainable nutrition coach who's helped over 1,000 women feel confident in their skin by learning how to eat for their goals without sacrificing a life well-lived. I created the Mind and My Wellness podcast to give you simple, effective, and manageable tips you can take away from each episode and implement in your daily life to look and feel like the best version of you. Each week, my guests and I teach you the secrets to mastering your health and owning your power. Nutrition, mindset, movement, and women's health are all topics you'll find here. Think of our time together as your productive little health break from the day. So grab your headphones, fill up your water, and let's dive into today's episode. Hello, Maddie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Mind of My Wellness podcast. Hi, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on the podcast because not only have you helped so many women on their hormone and gut health journey, but you have helped me on my own personal hormone and gut health journey. And so I'm really excited to have you on. Would you tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are so that my listeners can get a good understanding? Yeah. So I am Maddie. I'm a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, which is the mouthful. I started out as a certified health coach and I started, I specialize in women's gut and hormone health. And after health coaching for a couple of years, I decided I wanted to dive a little bit deeper and get into functional testing, which has been life-changing for myself, my practice, and most importantly, my clients. And I know that's kind of how we connected. So gut and hormone focused functional testing plus more. And so that's kind of what I do day to day now working with hundreds of women dealing with all kinds of like IBS, inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune conditions, hormone imbalances, post-birth control syndrome, which I know we'll talk about today, PCOS, all those kinds of things and connecting the dots and getting some actual data as to figuring out where we even start with all of those things because they're very much connected. And I like the test, not guess model. Oh, yes. I definitely was guessing for far too long before I started testing. And I know you just, you cover so much that is so beneficial. And honestly, when I was starting out with my journey coming off of hormonal birth control, I will have a whole other episode just on my journey because it's kind of an extensive one, but there's just so much information out there. But at the same time, a lot of women don't know where to look. So I know with my audience, I sent out a poll and I asked them, you know, from a hormone perspective, what is it that you are, what is it that you want to learn about most? And a lot of my audience 
has a very similar journey to me or is about to embark on this journey to come off of hormonal birth control. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about coming off of hormonal birth control, but let's start with what does hormonal birth control actually do to the body? Yeah. So the reason why I got into this, it's not necessarily my only niche, but the reason why I got into any of this in the first place is because I dealt with my own longstanding birth control situation that was very frustrating, felt very alone, very confused. I didn't have a lot of answers and guidance, and I figured a lot of it out for myself. And then when I went back to school, then I was able to dive a little bit deeper into the science and the actual tactical things that women can do to make the transition off of hormonal birth control a lot more smooth. And so that started with my own journey, which I'll quickly share just because I feel like a lot of people probably have similar journeys to both you and I. I went on birth control when I was 15 and I had been on it for 10 years and I was really only told about the benefits of going on birth control. I was never told about the risks or the downsides. And so I had to learn those for myself. And I feel like a lot of women that we know have also had to learn those the hard way. So I went on it at 15 thinking, wow, this is kind of a miracle drug. I can have sex freely and not have to worry about getting pregnant. I don't have acne. It actually helped me lose a little bit of weight. I wasn't really getting much of a period. It was really light, super easy, no cramps. And it felt too good to be true, which when, you know, most things are the too good to be true thing is hard because it's like, yeah, it usually is too good to be true. And of course, there's a lot of value in having the option to use hormonal birth control, but it became something that later kind of ruined my life because I just didn't realize what I was getting into at the time. It helped me feel good in the moment, but then there were a lot of downsides when I ended up transitioning off. And a lot of the risks associated with birth control are just not shared with us in the doctor's office. And that can be anything from anxiety, depression, migraines, hair loss, infertility, certain types of cancers were usually shared with regarding the cancer that the birth control pill can alleviate or reduce the risk of instead of the cancers that it can actually increase. And so there's a risk to benefit ratio for everybody who gets on it, but it can increase certain types of cancer, blood clots, risk of stroke. The anxiety and depression is probably the most prevalent thing that I see in my clients. And I also dealt with, it contributes to lots of nutrient deficiencies, which were big issues for me down the line, gut issues that can contribute to leaky gut, which was a big issue of mine and even is connected with inflammatory bowel disease, which I was hospitalized for 12 years ago. And that was like five or six years into taking the hormonal birth control. So there are a lot of risks associated with the birth control pill that we just don't know. There's like this very long pamphlet that we never get handed to in the doctor's office. And then it takes a long time to clean up that mess. So as long as women know what they're getting into and can weigh out the benefit to risk ratio for themselves, I feel like they can go in it knowing whether or not it's worth it for them. Absolutely. I went on birth control at a similar age. I think I was 16. And it was because I had irregular cycles and I had acne. So my mom took me to the doctor and it was like, yep, let's put you on birth control. And I mean, I also think at that time, I mean, my mom didn't really know any better. You know, it's it was kind of what everybody was doing. So I think it's important to also know, because sometimes I think like, oh, I wish I had known all this sooner, but it's great no matter where you are to just start educating yourself on, you know, the positives of it, what the pros could be, but also the impact that it can have. So thank you for sharing that. I would love to know when you're transitioning off of birth control. So I started transitioning off of birth control last April. So it's been almost, gosh, a little over a year now. And I'm still going through the process of my body reacclimating with my hormones. I have a lot of messages from other women who are like, oh, I, you know, your journey is really inspiring. I'm planning to go off of hormonal birth control. What are some of the symptoms? Because I don't, I mean, I didn't know this at first, but post birth control syndrome, you mentioned this already. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what some of the symptoms are that you may expect when transitioning off of birth control? 
Yeah. So this is one thing that I learned the hard way. And it very much depends on how long you were on the pill for. So somebody that was on the pill for maybe two years might not have post-birth control syndrome or might not experience very intense symptoms. But a lot of us who have been on it for 10, 15, even 20 years, the symptoms can be pretty intense for anywhere between like three to 12 plus months after getting off. So it's not always a smooth ride. There are things that you can do to smooth that transition and make the whole process a lot easier, which we'll talk about tangible tips that people can actually implement before they get off and after they get off to just make sure that they alleviate any of those potential symptoms. But some of the symptoms to look out for would be post-pill acne. That's probably one of the top ones. Hit me for sure. Yeah. Same. So (laughs) hard. Uh, Terrible. I was 25 or 26 years old, covered in cystic acne recently, just around that same time diagnosed with PCOS. I had cysts all over my ovaries. I had gained like 10 pounds of water weight and inflammation. I was having panic attacks, insomnia, like the symptoms that came within like three to six months of me getting off the pill, which I came off cold turkey. And I can talk about why people should not get off the pill cold turkey. Anything from that post-pill PCOS and post-pill acne for a lot of people, even if it's not PCOS, heavy periods, intense cramps, PMS, hair growth on the face, which is called hirsutism and is usually associated with PCOS or high androgens. The pill can actually decrease androgens or male hormones that us women have. We just don't have as many while we're on it. So then there's this like revenge or rebound effect that happens when we get off. So if if you were on the pill for 10 years, for example, your testosterone and your androgens have been suppressed or lowered, your body kind of gets used to that. You get off and then your body's like, whoa, we have to make all these hormones again. And there's this huge rebound effect. And so oftentimes there's a surge of high testosterone and or high DHEA for women around like the six month mark getting off the pill. And that's where cystic acne comes in, the hirsutism, hair growth on the face, like chin hair growth, uh, male pattern hair loss on the head, even hair like on the nipples. And women are like embarrassed to talk about it. Like what's going on with me? Where is this coming from? And that's the androgen rebound effect getting off the pill. Anxiety and depression, not that getting off the pill will cause anxiety and depression, but the rebound and the big transition off of synthetic hormones from all those years can exacerbate anxiety and depression during that transition phase, missing periods, amenorrhea, weight gain. So those are some of the common symptoms to look out for. And there's post-pill PCOS is really common. I was diagnosed with PCOS. I had PCOS and now I have completely reversed my PCOS and I'm pregnant. So for anybody that has been diagnosed with PCOS and feels really scared and discouraged, it's totally possible to recover from or at least put into remission. But that's a whole nother topic as well. Yeah, which I also want to just quickly chat on this. Congratulations on your baby girl due in just a few months. Thank you. Maddie's story, I mean... For anybody who doesn't know Maddie, I highly recommend you go check out her Instagram or her website and look at her story because it is absolutely incredible. And the fact that now you are pregnant and I know you were fearful that you wouldn't be able to get pregnant just naturally is absolutely amazing. And it's with all the hard work that you've put in over the past decade. So For anybody who doesn't know Maddie, go look at her story because it is absolutely incredible. But going back to transitioning off in the post-birth control syndrome symptoms, I actually, this goes perfectly in line with my story because when I had transitioned off the pill, the first three months, I was like, oh, like I'm not, well, this was the second time I transitioned off the pill. The first time I, both times I went cold turkey, but the first time I went cold turkey and immediately my body, just my acne started showing up. I had a very different lifestyle and a very different diet at that point too, which I know we'll talk about today. But the second time it was like three months and I was like, okay, I think I'm through, (laughs) I'm through it. Like I'm in the clear. My acne's not popping up, which was my biggest fear coming off of the pill. And then it came back with a vengeance. So I'm glad that you mentioned the timeline because for me, I just thought that, oh, cool, I'm I'm in the clear. Even though I hadn't gotten my cycle back, I was like, okay, everything I'm reading says that you can 
you know, get your cycle back within six months to a year. So thank you for sharing that because I think that's super important and something that I wish that I knew when I was transitioning off of the pill too. So to kind of keep that conversation going in terms of how to transition off of the pill, what would your recommendations be steps and tips that you can give the listeners who are interested in transitioning off the pill? Yeah. So first of all, it can be really confusing when you feel good for the first few months getting off the pill and then it hits you. So sometimes women get a cycle immediately, like one month after they get off the pill. And that's actually still a withdrawal bleed. So it's not really a true period. It's that your body's still in that same rhythm of being on synthetic hormones all of that time. And then maybe three, six, nine months later, the period goes missing and doesn't come back or all of the symptoms come along with that, like the acne, the androgen surge, all of that kind of stuff. So there are ways to prevent this, which we'll talk about. My favorite way to approach getting off the pill is of course, making sure that the decision is right for you and checking with your doctor and making that decision in a strategic way, instead of just being like, I don't really want to be on this anymore. I'm going to stop in the middle of my pack or at the end of this month or whatever it is. So I would say, be very intentional about it. Check with your doctor, write out the pros and the cons and weigh out that risk to benefit ratio for you. Once you confidently make that choice and know what your risks are going to be, the crazy thing is that we're told it's like the only way to prevent pregnancy. And there are other ways that we'll talk about that you can prevent pregnancy with similar efficacy and less risk. So that's something that we'll get into in a little bit, but I always recommend prepping for at least three months before getting off the pill. So sometimes I'll have a client come to me and they're like, I just want to get off it tomorrow. And I'm like, I promise if we do all of this stuff for the next three months, you're going to be in such a better place and you're not going to have to clean up this big mess nine months down the line. So prepping for three months and the areas that I usually like to check off are nutrient deficiencies. So the pill can cause a depletion in magnesium, certain B vitamins, vitamin C, vitamin D, and things like selenium. And so I recommend filling nutritional gaps with like a high quality methylated B vitamin, a really high quality magnesium, taking it every single day, electrolytes, filling those mineral gaps a whole food vitamin C powder, like just kind of sprinkling in one, a really colorful, nutrient dense, blood sugar bouncing and gut friendly diet, which that will come in later in our conversation and in all the stuff that you share too. But then also taking some high quality supplements to actually fill those gaps that are depleted and imbalanced from being on the pill for however long. So filling the nutrient gaps, addressing stress, sleeping a lot, your body needs a lot of time to recover. And so if you're chronically stressed out, your body's inflamed, you're not sleeping, you're over-exercising, you're under-eating or you're, you're eating crappy foods, and then you're not taking those supplements, that's when we see the really bad post-pill symptoms coming back. One thing I wanted to point out is that the pill suppresses our hormones. So say when we're 15 years old, we have all these symptoms like really heavy periods and acne and all of these symptoms. When we go on the pill, it's like a bandaid. So the symptoms will go away, but they're not getting fixed. So when we get off the pill, all of those symptoms are going to come back because we didn't actually fix the root cause. So what usually happens is those original symptoms come back and more because we've caused some more damage from the nutrient deficiencies and the damage to our gut lining and all that kind of stuff. So the three months prep, filling the nutrient deficiencies, supporting your liver and supporting your gut, we can talk about tangible ways to do that, especially with gut testing to understand what's going on because the pill can contribute to leaky gut, which contributes to tons of different symptoms and conditions in the body. So those are some of my recommendations. And then blood sugar balance is so incredibly important when it comes to nutrition. And I know that you talk so much about like the importance of protein and healthy fats and fiber and all that kind of stuff. If you're having blood sugar spikes, which a lot of people do, and you don't have to be diabetic to worry about your blood sugar, your insulin will go up. And when we have elevated insulin, that can tell our ovaries to make more testosterone than estrogen. And then we end up having high testosterone, which causes acne, the male pattern hair growth and all kinds of other symptoms. So keeping our blood sugar balance is really important for helping to balance our hormones over time after getting off the pill. That's what I think helped me the second time coming off too, because although I have had a lot of post-birth control syndrome symptoms coming off of the pill the second time, the first time it was so much worse. 
And again, like I said, my diet and my lifestyle was completely different than what it is now. Now, you know, I focus on a high protein diet. I do take blood sugar into account by, you know, building balanced meals and then eating my fats and my proteins before my carbs and no naked carbs. So I know you talk a lot about that too, but is there anything else in terms of specific foods in the diet or things to maybe eliminate or limit when you're trying to transition off of hormonal birth control? Yeah. So there's a lot of different information circulating out there. And I know that people may get confused or overwhelmed. So the first thing I would do is focus on the abundance of really colorful variety of different foods, protein, fats, fibers, and whole food carbs, and trying to avoid the junk like industrial seed oils, Gluten is something that because the pill can contribute to leaky gut in many people, gluten also contributes to leaky gut. And so a lot of people would likely benefit from 30 to 90 days gluten-free, even if they don't have celiac, even if they haven't tested for gluten sensitivity. But eventually when we talk about testing options, the GI map stool test can test for gluten sensitivity. So that can help somebody decide whether or not it's important for them to actually temporarily or permanently eliminate gluten to help heal the lining of their gut. Conventional dairy is something that does affect women's hormones because we're actually getting the hormones from the cow, even if it's full fat and organic dairy options, but some people do fine with it. So it kind of depends on your reactivity level to dairy. And then refined sugar is something that's definitely not going to help. So the core four would usually be like eliminating at least temporarily industrial seed oils, refined sugar, conventional dairy, and then grains and or gluten. So those are the things that can at least help allow things to balance out a little bit more quickly and efficiently after getting off the pill and allow your body to reset better. You've mentioned leaky gut a couple times. And for anybody that doesn't know what that is, do you mind just giving like a really simple explanation of what leaky gut even is? Yes. So the lining of our gut is one cell layer thick. It's not very thick at all. So it's really delicate and it protects us from the outside world. So keeping the good stuff in and the bad stuff out, like different pathogens and proteins that are hard to digest and all kinds of things. So we want to keep the lining of our gut, the mucosal layer in our gut really strong and certain things basically in layman's terms, like poke little tiny holes in the lining of the gut. So if you think of your gut lining as like a cheesecloth, over time, the little holes in the cheesecloth can open up bigger and bigger. And then certain proteins and things that we're eating get through into our bloodstream and cause the circulating immune complex and inflammation. And our immune system starts to attack certain things that we're eating. And it can contribute to autoimmune diseases and pain and all kinds of different symptoms and diseases. And so what we want to do is keep a really strong, healed and sealed lining in our mucosal layer in our gut to protect us from the outside world and keep everything working properly and keep our immune system balanced and everything. And so things like the birth control pill can contribute to intestinal permeability, which is the medical term for leaky gut, which open up those little tiny holes in the gut lining, stress, antibiotics, alcohol, things like proteins like gluten and in dairy, sugar, certain medications. Most people have leaky gut on some level. And so by eliminating a lot of those triggers and adding certain things in, like L-glutamine is something that a lot of people are hearing about because it's been trending on TikTok, which is so funny because it's been around for a very long time, or aloe or marshmallow root or turmeric and curcumin, different herbs and healing and sealing agents can help recover the lining of the gut in addition to removing the actual triggers. It's amazing how everything comes back to the gut. Yes, everything. That's what I'm learning through you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's what I get too excited about when people are like, hormones, hormones, hormones. I need to fix my hormones. And I'm like, okay, but we have to fix your gut first because your hormones will not become or stay balanced if we don't address the gut first. And then people, like, it feels a little bit confusing at first, but a lot of the time, once we heal the gut, the hormones then fall into place on their own. I hope you're loving today's episode. I wanted to quickly interrupt to share with you something that I only wish I knew years ago on my health journey that changed everything for me. 
I was the girl who had tried every diet under the sun, worked out seven days a week, yet was constantly left feeling disappointed that all my hard work and time wasn't paying off. Can you relate? If the answer is yes, then my free training, Three Steps to Transform Your Body with Macros, is just for you. In this training, I share the secrets to leveraging your metabolism to lose fat without restriction, eliminating the foods you love, or sacrificing a life well-lived. So if you're ready to say so long to yo-yo dieting and kick low-calorie diets to the curb, you're not going to want to miss this free training. Head on over to mindedmymacros.com forward slash free training to register today. Or you can head on over to my show notes to find the link. I hope to see you there. All right, now back to the episode. I want to get into test and testing because I have gotten a lot of questions about that. But quickly before we jump into testing, anything with lifestyle changes, you mentioned sleep being a big priority and making sure that you are getting enough sleep. First off, what do you recommend for sleep? I know I there's so much information out there, but do you have a recommendation for like what amount of sleep you should be aiming for? And then are there any other like lifestyle changes that somebody can start to kind of focus on? Yeah. So I won't get too much into the weeds here, but our circadian rhythm is our internal body clock that is in alignment with the sun. Females have a circadian rhythm and males have a circadian rhythm. We all have that same internal body clock. But females, when they're not on hormonal birth control, also have something called the infradian rhythm, which is affected by the circadian rhythm. Our infradian rhythm is our four-phase monthly cycle. And a lot of people may have heard of this, especially because of things that you share. But when we're bleeding, our menstrual cycle, moving into the follicular phase, moving into the ovulatory phase, and then into the luteal phase. So our infradian rhythm is influenced by our circadian rhythm. Say you're somebody that goes to bed at 1 a.m. every morning and you sleep in until like 9 or 10 a.m., your circadian rhythm is thrown off because you're not living in alignment with the sun. So the best thing you could do is live in alignment with the sun, get early morning light exposure, like around sunset or shortly thereafter when you wake up. Going to bed by 10.30 is optimal. I actually have a post on this that I could always reshare around the time that the podcast comes out. We can also link it down in the show notes too for you. Yeah. Perfect. So getting into bed before and falling asleep well before 11 p.m. is one of the best things you could do to get high quality sleep and optimize your circadian rhythm, which will then optimize your infradian rhythm because we often get a second wind after 10.30 p.m. or around 11 p.m where our cortisol goes up, which is another hormone that influences our reproductive hormones. And then it becomes this vicious cycle where we're tired and wired. We get that second wind and then we can be up for several more hours and it affects everything else the next day and beyond. So generally I would say get in bed and try to be asleep by 1030 and get at least eight hours, which a lot of people are like, oh, I don't need much sleep. I'm like a five, six hour (laughs) sleep person. Women actually need at least 30 minutes more sleep than men based on our hormonal fluctuations. And so there's a lot of research on just needing more sleep, especially when you're recovering from something like the transition off synthetic hormones for over a decade or whatever. So that would be the sleep portion. And then another common theme that I see, and I know you see a lot in your clients is stress and over-exercise. So I would say I loved one of your first episodes on weightlifting. And I would say weightlifting, walking, reducing high intensity workouts, reducing chronic cardio would be one of the best things you could do to one, reduce additional stressors, but then also just help with the, you know, moving your body in a gentle way enough, but not too much. I was kind of laughing to myself when you said everyone should be, or like women in particular should be getting eight hours. And I'm like, oh, I'm not quite not quite there yet. I need to work on that. And also I don't make it past, oh my gosh, I don't make it past 930. So I'm never getting that second wind, (laughs) but that's good though. Yeah. I mean, naturally I've just always woken up so early and I am like passed out either in bed or sometimes if we try to watch a movie, I mean, there's no way that I'm finishing a movie at night. (laughs) I'm just going to be fast asleep on the couch while Eric's watching it by himself. (laughs) Yes. 
Like even if like seven to nine hours, I would say is roughly the ideal amount of time, but some women need more than that. And I think we've all like, we're all very much intertwined in this hustle culture and trying to be as productive as possible. And less sleep is not better when it comes to hormones and recovering from post-birth control syndrome. Yes. And this also goes hand in hand with fat loss or with trying to build muscle. So I see it with my clients who anybody who doesn't have optimal quote unquote sleep, meaning, you know, they're getting less than that seven hours of sleep. And to kind of reiterate what you said, some women need more than that. And so what I see is that those women oftentimes have a lot harder time reducing body fat or building muscle, whatever their goal is, because they aren't prioritizing sleep, which is so critical. So, I mean, it is so important. I mean, I talk about sleep a lot because it is so important for so many reasons, but it's so interesting to hear about the infradian and the circadian kind of working together, which I actually didn't know that. So that's pretty cool. And another thing, the last thing I'll say on sleep that's really interesting is there have been studies that show getting less than seven hours of sleep makes you more insulin resistant. So even if say, say you sleep eight to nine hours one night and say you sleep less than seven hours one night, if you eat the same exact thing the day that you slept less than seven hours, you're going to have bigger glucose spikes, more insulin circulating in your system, fat storage hormone that's going to sabotage fat loss goals or the ability to gain muscle. And because dysregulation in our blood sugar affects our reproductive hormones, it becomes this whole vicious cycle. So one of the best things you could do is just sleep more than seven hours. But I know a lot of people aren't doing that. So that could always be like a really good, easy place to start for a lot of people where it's like supports your blood sugar regulation, supports your reproductive hormones, supports your stress hormones, like all of these things downstream. Yeah. Amazing. I'd love to move into testing. So again, I mentioned that I've gotten a lot of messages saying, you know, where should I even begin? What should I, what test should I do? What should I be looking for? Can you talk a little bit about tests that you recommend and where to start with those? Yeah. So I know that a lot of us will first go to our OBGYN for a hormone testing. And a lot of the times we will either maybe be dismissed or kind of shrugged off like, eh, testing your hormones isn't important. It's not really going to show much. They fluctuate throughout the month. So you're not really going to get a good idea of what's going on. So when it comes to like testing that's covered by insurance, you can always request a hormone panel from your doctor and see what they can do. I prefer dried urine testing, the Dutch test over blood testing because of the accuracy and the information that you can gather from it. If you do go to your doctor to request tests that are covered by insurance and are likely going to be blood tests, make sure that you don't test your hormones on any random day of the month because your hormones fluctuate. We go through the four phases throughout the month and you need to test on a specific day in order to know where your hormones should be at that time. If you're on hormonal birth control at the time of blood testing, all of your hormones will be suppressed. So it's not going to be very accurate before, if you haven't been on hormonal birth control or after you've transitioned off at least three months or three cycles post pill is when you would want to start testing your hormones. And the Dutch test is my favorite way to test hormones. That's dried urine testing for comprehensive hormones. And I know that you've done that. I've done that. So many of my clients have done it. It is so informative. You take that on day 19, 20, or 21 of an average 28-day cycle. It depends on when you get your cycle, but it's really important that you test in the right window because say you test right before you get your period, your hormones are going to look really low and you wouldn't know that you're actually like really estrogen dominant a week before that, for example. So you test in a specific window, you pee on these little strips Um, It tests everything from your cortisol, your DHEA, your progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, different metabolites, B vitamins, neurotransmitters, and more. So you get this really beautiful picture of what's going on through the Dutch test. Before you do the Dutch test, though, I recommend so that you don't end up wasting money and running around in circles doing a GI map stool test because your gut health directly influences your hormone health. And a lot of the time I have clients do a GI map stool test. We look at their gut, we heal their gut, their hormone stuff resolves. And then they're like, oh, I don't even really need a Dutch test. 
So instead of spending 600 plus dollars on multiple tests, you might as well start with the gut on a deeper level, heal that, understand what's going on there. There's a lot of markers on a GI map stool test that give us information as to how we're metabolizing excess hormones, different bacteria that can influence our hormone levels and more. So that's usually where I like to start. So the GI map stool test is one. The Dutch dried urine testing for comprehensive hormones is another. And then one of the last main tests that I typically recommend would be an HTMA. That's a hair tissue mineral analysis. And because the birth control pill can deplete certain minerals, we love to look at the mineral status after getting either before, during, or after getting off the pill so that we know how to replenish those because it makes such a direct impact on our hormonal balance, our energy levels. Um, If people are dealing with like post-pill hair loss, brain fog, low libido, all that kind of stuff, we can also gather a ton of information from hair tissue mineral analysis testing as well. I did those backwards, as you know. I first got a Dutch test, and which I don't, I don't regret. But now, in hindsight, I absolutely would have done the GI map stool test first because that was so comprehensive. And I know when we went over my results and you did your interpretation of it, that's where a lot of my issues and symptoms were stemming from. What I also want to just really recommend is that you always work with a professional or seek out a professional like Maddie or anybody who can interpret the results because the results are very, very intensive. And if you spend all that money to do the test and then get the results, it's going to be very challenging, if not impossible, for you to interpret those correctly. And I know I even looked at the GI map stool test results. And I'm like, yeah, I I need Maddie to, to walk me through this because there's it's so in detail. Can you tell us a little bit about what the GI map stool test reads out on and what it can report on? Yeah. So anything from certain bacteria, pathogenic bacteria like H. pylori, parasites, worms, fungus, like candida. We all have candida in our body, but when we have candida overgrowth, that becomes an issue. And that can affect our sugar cravings and our brain clarity and our body weight and water retention and all of these things that then end up affecting our hormones as well. It tests for inflammatory markers, gluten sensitivity, good and bad bacteria. So the diversity of our gut microbiome, the good bacteria that we want enough of, but not too much. And then also the bad or opportunistic bacteria that we don't want overgrown. So yeah, it tests a lot. It's a really beautiful picture of our gut and gives us so much information. There's this one marker called beta-glucuronidase that is an enzyme that if elevated tells us that we're not doing a good job, our body's not doing a good job at getting rid of excess estrogen. And then we have excess estrogen circulating throughout our body and we need to get rid of that in order to not be estrogen dominant. We want to have a good balance of progesterone and estrogen in the body to feel really good. And so when we have an elevated level of beta-glucuronidase and we're estrogen dominant, we know where that's coming from, typically from dysbiosis in the gut. So we can trace a lot of things back to what's going on in the gut. Once we get rid of certain pathogens and balance things out in the gut, a lot of the time things in our regarding our hormones get better, like the balance of estrogen, progesterone, um, testosterone levels, inflammation levels, which then make everything from PMS and period pain and cramping so much better. So lots of different things that do show up there on the GI map. I'm so glad I did the GI map stool test because I had H. pylori, I had candida overgrowth, still working through that with you. And But now, gosh, almost three months into the process of working to kind of kill it off, I now feel like so much better. And you know, I feel like I'm moving in the right direction. So again, if I had known those things at the start of transitioning off of hormonal birth control, I think my experience would have been much, much different. So I hope anybody who's listening who is thinking about transitioning off or in the process of transitioning off, just take some of these tidbits of information to at least do your due diligence and look into, you know, what these tests are and potentially someone who can help you interpret them and, you know, shifting some of your or prioritizing some lifestyle changes, diet changes, things like that. At what point would you recommend 
for anybody transitioning off of birth control to start to look into these tests? Yeah. So it kind of depends on how long they've been on birth control, how ready they are to get off. The birth control pill suppresses all of our hormones. And so it's not recommended to take a Dutch test while you're on hormonal birth control. Certain IUDs allow certain women's bodies to still ovulate. And so you can actually Dutch test while you're on certain types of hormonal birth control and get a baseline or understanding of what's going on in that moment. But the best case scenario would be three months or three cycles post pill. So you're getting a regular cycle. It's been at least three months and you would initially start with a GI map. You could start with a GI map sooner than that, like before or immediately after you get off the pill. But in order to time a Dutch test properly, you would want to wait at least three months. And then you could get a Dutch test at that point to look at your hormones. But say you do a GI map anywhere while you're on the pill or shortly thereafter, you heal your gut, things start resolving on their own. You may not even need a Dutch test at that point, which is always kind of the best case scenario. You can take a hair tissue mineral analysis test anytime. It doesn't matter if you're on the pill, transitioning off, or you've been off it for multiple months. That's just a good gauge of your current mineral status for the last three months. So the general timeline would be a GI map and an HTMA test. You can kind of get whenever you're ready, but you wouldn't want to take a Dutch test necessarily until you're about three months post birth control. So if you're somebody like me who did not get their cycle back, would you still recommend waiting to take a Dutch test until that cycle did return? Or is there a certain point where taking a Dutch test would be any bit beneficial? So if you have not gotten your cycle back within like three to six months post pill, which is actually pretty normal, and I don't want people to be afraid or feel like they're never going to get their period back or their fertility is wrecked for life, because it actually is really unfortunately common to not get your cycle back. Say you've been on the pill for 10 years, your hormones have been suppressed for 10 years, your body has been in a type of like chemical menopause for all of that time. It's going to take a while for your cycle to regulate again. And so... If like between that three to six month mark, if you still haven't gotten your period back, you can test any time in that window. What's likely to happen is that your estrogen and progesterone, maybe testosterone are all going to be super low. And at that point we know, okay, we've got some work to do to help increase these hormones and get our period back. There are certain things that can help expedite that process, especially like food and lifestyle changes, stress management, and then also specific supplements. And so that would be the best case scenario, basically just getting a baseline understanding that hormones are likely going to look low at that time, but then we can replenish what levels are low, fill those gaps. And sometimes bioidentical hormones can be helpful in just getting the period back and started, getting somebody back in a good rhythm, and then they can transition off of those at one point or another as well. Would that be considered like progesterone? Yeah. So like bioidentical progesterone bioidentical estrogen, sometimes when estrogen levels are really low, people feel really crappy because it's like you're in menopause. And so you want to get those levels up. There are a lot of natural ways to increase those hormones, but sometimes just to feel better quicker, bioidentical progesterone, estrogen, and sometimes even DHEA can help boost things and get that cycle going again. That was when I took my Dutch test. It took me six months maybe seven months to get my first cycle back. I had two cycles and then I got very, very, very stressed and lost it. And then it wasn't until I think it was another five or six months after starting to work with you and taking some supplements, changing a bit of my lifestyle and routine in terms of you know prioritizing my sleep more and really making sure that I was incorporating stress management techniques that I then was able to get my cycle back again. But to your point, on my Dutch test, everything read super low. And it was because I still, my hormones were still trying to figure themselves out at that point when I took it. So I'd be really interested to try another Dutch test once, you know, everything. Well, I might not even have to do another Dutch test if everything, you know, resolves itself with what we learned from the GI map test. But the last question I have for you in terms of think a fear some women may have if they're listening and they're like, oh gosh, you know, I, maybe I do want to transition off the pill, but I'm not really looking to get pregnant. What are some alternative 
methods that we can implement to help prevent pregnancy? Yes. So this is going to look different for everybody. And depending on your current risks and the risk to benefit ratio for you, the stage that you're in your life, it's going to depend. So the three main options that are not the hormonal birth control pill, which is my least favorite option because of all of the downsides would be something as simple as condoms. And I like organic condoms. I like the sustain brand. That's just something that I used for a long time and really helped me get through the years that I was not ready to get pregnant. Um, And so that's always an option. Of course, you know, there's not perfect use of those and there are risks. So understanding the risks associated there. FAM or fertility awareness method is probably the best option. However, it takes a lot of discipline and dedication. And so with user error, it's not as accurate, but if you do it really well, it's almost as effective as the pill and other options. And so that's usually a combination of tracking your cycle, not just using an app to tell you when you're ovulating because the app just guesses. There's just an algorithm that says, we assume all women ovulate on day 14. That is not true for most women. You could ovulate on day 12. You could ovulate on day 19. So if you just use your app alone and assume that you're ovulating on day 14, that could get you pregnant. And I would not recommend just using a cycle tracking app. I would start there so that you get an idea of what your cycle looks like, how many days it is, tracking your symptoms throughout the four phases. So tracking your cycle, tracking your basal body temperature, which I know both you and I have aura rings. And I love using my aura ring to track my basal body temperature because there's a lot less user error than manually tracking with a thermometer. That's an option too. It's a really affordable option. There are things like the temp drop, which is a device that you can wear on your arm overnight that tracks your basal body temperature. That's a way to confirm when ovulation has occurred so that you start to understand when ovulation is happening for you. For some women, like with PCOS that have irregular cycles, it can fluctuate month to month. So that's going to look a little bit different for them. But the fertility awareness combination is cycle tracking, basal body temperature tracking, and tracking cervical mucus production. Because during the month when your cervical mucus turns to like sticky raw egg white material, that is when you are most fertile. And so combining all three of those methods is what the fertility awareness method is. There are a couple of resources that I recommend. The book Beyond the Pill by Dr. Jolene Brighton. Tons of amazing information in that. Woman Code and In the Flow by Alyssa Vitti. And then the Period Repair Manual by Dr. Laura Brighton. Those are all really good options that include a lot of the science and information around fertility awareness method, non-hormonal birth control options. Because I'm not a doctor, I want to make sure that everybody always knows the risks associated with some of these methods because there is user error that can come along with these. But if we are educated from a young age on how to look for these signs and symptoms in our bodies, we actually know when we're ovulating and we can prevent pregnancy by abstaining from sex during the risky ovulatory window and using condoms during that time or just not having sex at all. And then after ovulation has been confirmed, you're in the clear until you get your period. So condoms, fertility awareness method, and then IUDs. So IUDs are not my favorite because there are still quite a few risks associated. There's a copper IUD, which is non-hormonal, which can be great for some people, but can also cause a lot of issues for other people. And so just know the risks associated with that. And then most IUDs are progestin-only IUDs, which progestin is a synthetic form of progesterone. So it's not like necessarily the good healthy progesterone that we make in our body. It's different, but a lot of women still ovulate on the IUD, the progestin only IUD. So it can be a better option for some, although there are risks associated with that as well. Great. Well, I know I said that was my last question, but I also, I know that we're going to have listeners who just feel like they don't know how to even get started or who to look for, or, you know, how to find somebody to help them on this journey. I know for me, it took, well, I went to my OBGYN first, and then I had to do a lot of my own research and health advocating to get to where I am now. What would you recommend if you're doing like a simple Google search in terms of, 
you know, how can I connect with somebody who can help me on this journey in this way? What would you recommend that they're looking for? So I would probably use a combination of a few different people. If you have your primary care physician or an OBGYN, having them on your side so that you can get what you need from them and ask them questions and potentially get like an intravaginal ultrasound if you're worried about cysts or PCOS, certain blood tests to rule out PCOS in certain cases or like, you know, check anything from your LH, FSH, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, all of those tests. You could at least get a baseline and have a doctor on your side to help you decide whether or not getting off of hormonal birth control or whatever decision you're trying to make at that time is kind of backed by somebody that you trust when it comes to emergency situations. So that would be the conventional side of things. But then I would also complement that with a holistic practitioner of some sort. So that could be a functional medicine doctor. That could be a naturopathic doctor. That could be an FDN like myself, where we're specialized in gut and hormone health. We do functional testing. You can get a lot of information when it comes to root cause and risk factors and looking like under the hood and figuring out what's going on, putting all those puzzle pieces together. So I would actually say kind of like a combination approach of having some Western support and some Eastern or holistic support to complement each other. That's usually the best case scenario. So yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was a jam-packed episode. You gave so much information. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Can you tell my audience where they can find you? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I know every single time we talk, we could talk for I know hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so eventually we'll have all the gut stuff to talk about and everything else. Yeah. But people can find me easiest probably on Instagram at mad, M-A-D-D dot healthy or on my website, madhealthy.com. And they can DM me if they have any questions, or I put question boxes up a lot on my stories. I have a lot of education, free resources on my page itself. And then there's a work with me button on my website, madhealthy.com as well. Amazing. Honestly, Maddie's Instagram is one of my favorites because you provide so much information on there that are just easy tidbits that you can pull and start to implement in your daily life. It doesn't feel overwhelming. You do an amazing job of simplifying everything. So definitely recommend giving you a follow if you know, you're know you looking to transition off the pill or you're just looking to learn more about how to improve your hormone health, gut health. Yeah. So thank you so much, Maddie. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. I love hearing from you. So shoot me a DM over on Instagram at mind and my macros to keep the combo going. If you've learned anything from this episode or any of my past episodes, I'd really love it. If you took a few seconds to leave a quick rating and review on Apple podcasts or Spotify, I love hearing what you've learned or what you've taken away from any of these episodes. It means so much to me when you do that. And if you have any friends, you know, that need a little help kicking some old dieting mentalities to the curb and want some simple, effective, and sustainable tips to feel their best, share a link to this episode with them. Thanks so much for listening and I'll catch you next time.